Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Feature podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Daphne Hayam Langford, founder and CEO of Tarsier Pharma, and our host is Stefan Loren, Managing Director of Life Sciences at Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on March 11, 2022. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another edition of Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Loren, from the Oppenheimer Healthcare Investment Banking Team. Over the last 50 years, the gender gap in the life science and physical sciences space have steadily closed. Back in 1970, women held only about 14% of the jobs in the area, while in 2019, that figure had slowly grown to 45%. While there's still a ways to go, the progress made to date has been underpinned by inspirational trailblazers who have paved the way for all of those who followed. Today, we are pleased to have the opportunity to speak with one of these trailblazers, Dr. Daphne Haim Langford, founder of Tarsier Pharma and also the recent winner of the 2021 EU Prize for Women Innovators. The EU Prize is a highly competitive prize that's awarded to the most talented women entrepreneurs across the EU and associated countries to recognize and actually fund the women behind game-changing innovations. Dr. Haim Langford has over 20 years of experience across the biomedical industry, including careers as an investor, an entrepreneur, and a corporate executive. Daphne, welcome, and thank you very much for being here today. I'd like you to introduce yourself. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your background. Thank you very much, Stefan, uh, for having me in your very interesting podcast. I'm a scientist like yourself with a PhD in biophysics from the Technion. And my journey from being a scientist to an executive in the life sciences industry started already during my PhD uh, work. I had the privilege to be supervised by Professor Joram Palti, who is the inventor of the Novocure technology for treatment of glioblastoma, stage four, and a very aggressive form of brain cancer. Being supervised by him opened for me the door to the entrepreneurial world, specifically around medical innovations. I live in Israel with my family and our cat and dog, and I'm trying to be very active in promoting female executives. That's fantastic. And, and what first inspired you to pursue a career in science, and when did you have that epiphany? As a kid, I was spending a lot of time in outdoors activities. I traveled a lot with my parents and family and was always fascinated by nature, by different organisms and animals. I remember that at the age of 11, I received the responsibility to take care of the pet farm at school. And with friends, we were responsible for all the animals getting up very early in the morning, getting to school two hours before starts, and take care of the animals. Later on, as a teenager, I volunteered with a local vet to help treat rescued animals. So it was quite obvious that I will pursue a career in science. So it sounds like everything started very early for you and very young. That's a, that's a wonderful story. So over the years, what changes have you seen in the environment for women scientists and innovators? I will divide my answer into two. 
I think that when it comes to politics, uh, we can see some changes in the last decades. However, as you mentioned nicely, in the last 50 years, since the 70s of the last century, more women are getting out to work outside home. Uh, we see more scientists and innovators. But when it comes to the leadership positions and entrepreneurship, in the last two decades, there is not much of a progress in terms of number of companies led by women. And if for the last 50 years, it was the struggle led by females to get more opportunities, and we needed to pave the way ourselves, I think that we reached the maximum we can do, and responsibility for gender equality is now uh, on both men and women. As you know, during 2021, although a quarter of startup companies in US and Europe are led by female executives, only 2% of VC funds were invested in those companies. And there is much more, much more to do in this regard. I think as we've talked about before, definitely form follows funding. And I think the answer to this is, as you say, really encouraging greater amount of VC funds that are run by women, investing in women. You know, I think the other thing that, that something I read recently was that there is actually a very large gender gap still in prize money and award money as well to women versus men. And I think from the standpoint of the work, it's clear that the work is not different. And again, uh, your point is well taken that maybe this needs to be something that's done from the top down at this point. And that would be interesting. So in your opinion then, what can be done to encourage those up top to come back and really equal, equalize the playing field? So when we look in the academy, for instance, there are approximately 50% females completing postgraduate uh, degrees in science, but not enough yet positions in the academy. This is one point that uh, can be regulated, actually, because, you know, specifically in a governmental support academia, it can be done by regulation. So this is one place we should see change. Also, we need more role models. When I look for entrepreneurs, uh, role models and mentors, most of them are men. Maybe in politics again or science, there are some. But when thinking of entrepreneurs who are role models, it is hard to find women that build and established companies from scratch. Together, we need more funding to companies led by female and women. And I think that at this stage, as mentioned, we, we reached our limits. And it's time to go from the top of the pyramid and uh, make sure that LPs, for example, will insist that their money will be invested in diversified VCs, partners, of course, and diversified companies. Obviously, once you have more female as partners in VCs, that they will invest in female-led startups and uh, female CEOs, and uh, female CEO will most probably will have a diverse board and of course a diverse management team, which will help to create the next generation of women entrepreneurs. And it's, it's all about feeding the company led by female CEOs, uh, feeding them with uh, funding to create the next generation. And this is how you make change. And actually, from the standpoint of behavioral economics, uh, many of the famous Israeli behavioral economics uh, 
professors have taught us something that's very interesting, and that's that diversity of thought at the board level and at the company level leads to better outcomes. And that's the bottom line, and that benefits investors, it benefits people, and it benefits society. So all of the above, it's a win-win situation. I, I think I'm, I'm going to go off uh, on a little bit of a tangent here, but so potentially what you would be suggesting a solution could be for tax incentives, really financial incentives to push greater funding to women who are leading companies and who are entrepreneurs as well. Yes, and it's very important not to stay in the, like we had the greenwash time when you gave some added value and everyone wanted to act green, environmentally speaking. So we should make sure that it doesn't stay in the woman wash. So everyone we have is an um, example that he diversified the company or the board or the website with having one woman uh, face. It must be more established uh, effort by all parties involved. So if you could go back in time and tell your younger self one thing, what would that be? I think that the ultimate piece of advice is that if someone tell you that you cannot do something, prove them wrong. Just find a way to do whatever you believe you should do. There is always a way. Don't be intimidated by authority or greater knowledge because knowledge can be gained and uh, find yourself the best mentors. And don't be shy, ask questions all the time. So let's talk a little bit about what happened late last year. You won the highly competitive EU prize for women innovators. Can you tell the listeners here a little bit about the prize and actually what it was like to win such a prestigious award? The, the prize for women innovators in Europe was created around 10 years ago in order exactly to do that, to create role models for the next generation of female entrepreneurs. And um, since we received an Horizon grant from the European Commission in 2019, our European project manager approached the company and asked us to apply to this prize. As you know, a CEO managing a small company running phase three clinical trial, I didn't have the time even to look at the application, but my team insisted and they applied on my behalf. So it was very exciting. Um, it was even touching to some extent to receive some kind of um, acknowledgement of the hard work and the many glass ceiling needed to be break during my journey to the CEO position and the leadership in the life sciences industry. I don't see it as a, as a milestone. It's just a nice acknowledgement along the way. And I think that for me personally, the main milestone came afterwards where I, when I presented my company to the European Parliament. And as an Israeli, it was a very honorable podium to, to stand at. So one uh, quick question I have for you then. I know we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but how do you feel, for example, when a woman CEO sits down with an investor or an, a VC versus a male CEO? Are there different questions that they're asking, different approaches that they take? Well, actually, you know, I was a, a venture capitalist uh, in the past, and uh, I read a lot about how to make sure we are diversifying our funding um, unfortunately, we didn't have much of a chance to do that because there weren't uh, female entrepreneurs that applied for funding in the VC I worked for. 
But one of a, a very interesting article I read about, and I saw this afterwards as a CEO myself, is that it's very interesting point. Actually, when an investor asks due diligence questions, they will ask more about the size of the opportunity when they are talking with a male CEO. And while more about the risks when they are talking with a female CEO. And this is probably an unconscious act. And you know, unconscious acts are the hardest to change. But it is, it is what it is. And my advice to other female CEOs that are um, raising funding is when they, you, you are being asked about risks, turn this into discussion about the opportunity. It's great advice from the standpoint of, of you're absolutely right, unconscious uh, habits are, are very hard to break. And uh, from the standpoint of, of communication that, that really, uh, I guess, lands on the CEO versus uh, the VC, but times do change. I think the thoughts we've talked about, I know this in the past as well, the, the younger generation certainly has different thoughts than we do and uh, with time, things generally move in the right direction, obviously not as fast as they need to. Uh, we never want to rely on those who come after us, but at the same time, unfortunately, sometimes that's, that's what happens, is things take a little longer than they really should. Well, Stefan, I think that you know me for enough time that I believe that we should take responsibility. I wouldn't pass our problem, not the environmental problem, problem and not the diversity problem, to the next generation. It's not fair to our kids, my daughter. Um, it is our responsibility, and at this stage, it should come from the top of the pyramid, which is definitely not the young ones, not yet. So we've talked a little bit about your various professional lives. You've been a scientist, a CEO, a venture capitalist, and even the co-founder of a nonprofit organization. Which of these have you found to be most rewarding and why? You're asking me to choose between my kids. Um, I think that I'm looking at my scientific background as a basis for everything because it's an attitude, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of looking at problems and searching for solutions. It's, it's everything. As a venture capitalist, I had the privilege to serve on boards of companies with very talented people. I learned a lot in a very interesting companies and technologies that brought various products to market. And every time you can bring a product to market, this is extremely rewarding, specifically if this is a destructive technology for unmet medical needs. And I think that everyone in our field is feeling the, the rewards when a product reaches patients. Uh, establishing a not-for-profit organization, I looked at this as a way to give back to the community because I had a lot of luck. I had a lot of mentors along the way and a lot of help, and it is important to give back. Uh, it's not a secret that I'm fascinated by nature, so establishing an organization that promotes development of technologies inspired by nature and teaching this uh, specific innovation Way, way of innovation to others, um, it's almost like a hobby for me, so a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, I believe that being a CEO and founder of Tarsier Pharma is the most rewarding part of my 
career and my it's actually a life mission the execution the thinking the overcoming so many challenges in so many different aspects finding solution it's amazing but then to see a kid that get into the clinic with a terrible vision and um, in terrible inflammation in the eye and after four weeks he sees and has no inflammation nothing can be more rewarding than that so that dovetails right into my next question and that's one of the things that i consistently hear about you from all participants in the industry from the science side to the investor side is your tremendous passion for your work in ocular inflammatory diseases and your absolute determination and dogged determination to improve the welfare of the patients can you tell us a little bit about more the unmet medical need in the space and what drives you we are coming to the personal disclaimer since i think i cannot tell you about the unmet medical need without speaking about my personal journey so as a kid at the age of eight i was admitted to the hospital because i didn't see very well and i was diagnosed with uveitis which is a chronic autoimmune inflammation of the eye i thought that uh, this is an just an inflammation like any other inflammation and this is what my parents thought as well and you know it was before doctor internet era i was treated with a lot of steroids eye drops eye injections of steroids chemotherapy but the inflammation was very persistent and the damage to the eye was there when i was 16 i spoke with my ophthalmologist that saw me every two weeks or so because the situation wasn't very nice in my eyes and i was very active as a kid and i told him that i'm going to be a scientist obviously and he told me why bother go to be a secretary you are not going to see to complete your bachelor degree why work so hard and i was shocked i thought this is only an inflammation again and you know a cure will be come soon it's inevitable someone is definitely working to find a cure for uveitis but i wanted to be a scientist and i was practical so i went uh, i skipped school i went to the israeli organization for the blind i didn't tell my parents and i asked them to teach me braille so i can be a scientist to cut the long story short i completed my phd and now still struggling with uveitis for 40 years no treatment other than steroids was developed for an active uveitis inflammation nothing has changed in the treatment for patients with ocular inflammation when it comes to uveitis it's always steroids eye drops but steroids increases the intraocular pressure that leads to glaucoma which is an irreversible damage to the optic nerve and patients like myself are losing their sight 67 percent of patients uh, we will have will have damage to their eyesight and 30,000 patients every year will be blind due to uveitis in the US. So as a venture capitalist, once I figure out I might find a, a drug that will treat this disease without the side effects of steroids, I realized that this is a responsibility I cannot say no to. And I didn't hesitate for a second and started the development of our TRSO1 which is an eye drop uh, formulation for patients with end-stage uveitis uh, and now we reach the stage of a phase 3 clinical trial which is 
after a very long journey and uh, this is why I'm passionate about UVI design. I think it's a great thing you didn't listen to the doctors so many years ago. A great thing for patients and, and not just yourself but, uh, but for the patients in the, in the area as well. So I want to shift gears um, a little bit here and you started a uh, nonprofit organization called the Israeli Biomimicry Organization. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, number one, what is biomimicry? Uh, and number two, why did you start the organization and, and what does it do? So biomimicry is a multidisciplinary field. The term is a combination of two words, bio, life, and mimicry from the Greek word uh, mimesis, to imitate. Looking at nature as a source of innovation, while biomimetic innovation can start from both sides. Obviously, as passionate about nature and fascinated by organisms and um, the creation, but also like innovation, this is exactly a field I wanted to promote uh, because there are many very interesting technologies derived from uh, biomimicry. And just a few examples how to create biomimicry innovations. So we can start from both sides to see the technological problem and searching from a solution in nature, like for example, the Japanese bullet train that had this problem of a major noise while getting out of a tunnel. Luckily, one of the engineers in this company was a bird watcher and he saw the kingfisher that while the kingfisher gets into the water for his meal, he creates no noise at all. The train company changed the train nose, then mimic exactly not only the shape, but also the diving angles of the kingfisher, and they were able to reduce dramatically the noise and of course increase the energy efficiency. So this is one way to create biomimicry innovation. The other way is to travel in nature, my preferred way of course, or to dive into scientific publications and find an interesting natural phenomena like the Velcro, which was developed based on a seed adherence mechanism found by an engineer, a Swiss engineer. Uh, there is also the Lotus effect, which is a way to maintain clean surfaces based on the way that the Lotus leaves stay um, clean despite their muddy habitat. And like the technology in the basis of our uh, molecule, which is based on the survival strategies of parasites. So finally, I'd be a little bit remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to tell everyone just a, a little bit about Tarsier Pharma and what you're doing at Tarsier Pharma to fight ocular inflammation and why the approach is different. Thank you very much for this, Stefan. Uh, Tarsier Pharma, as you figured out, is we are on a mission to bring a better and safer treatment for patients that are suffering from ocular inflammatory diseases like uveitis, which is the most prevalent blinding disease of the working age people. Most of the treatments, or actually the only treatment for active inflammation are steroids and for 70 years no one was able to bring something which is as good as steroids 
without their side effects. And the side effects for a chronic patients are terrible. Not only cataract, but IOP, intraocular pressure elevation and glaucoma, which is a blinding disease by itself. And when a patient has already reached the end stage uveitis, giving them steroids eye drops is very problematic to say the least. Uh, steroids and all the other immunosuppressants are suppressing the immune system. So it's very difficult to stop giving steroids and every time you are tapering down the amount of steroids, patients will suffer from a rebound effect, which is an uncontrolled inflammation. We are targeting this differently. We have a small molecule, relatively small molecule, inspired by nature. Um, and we develop this as an eye drop formulation because personally I don't like injections to the eye. And uh, with this, we already completed our proof of concept in humans in a clinical trial that was run in the US during 2020. And we started our registrational phase three trial in the US uh, last uh, September. We are currently randomizing patients in 15 sites in the US and just this week received uh, approvals to initiate our phase 3 trial also in Germany and France and uh, hopefully we will be able to replace steroids specifically for the end stage patients with uveitis that shouldn't receive steroid eye drops. Well, that would be a tremendous bonus for patients so thank you very much uh, Daphne for being with us here today on the Oppenheimer Let's Talk Future podcast. We greatly appreciate it and sharing some of your, your wisdom, both uh, on the science side, but also on the social side as well. So thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.